new series on uh, Advent. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, and um, this series is going to take us from today, the next two weeks, and then the day before Christmas Eve. So we'll have a chance to kind of dive into this, but it's called We're Expecting. And as I was um, praying and thinking about the series uh, that would lead us into Christmas, I began to collaborate with some other people, and, and we began discussing about all the different expectations that are around our thoughts of Jesus. All the different expectations that we carry when we, when we think about Christianity, when we think about our faith, the way that we interact with church and each other. Um, and it kind of gets complicated that we realize that the person who is at the center of, of our faith sometimes gets clouded and uh, kind of the waters get muddied because of our wrong expectations or assumptions about who he really is. And that's actually not a new thing. Actually, Jesus was born into a time and place where there were lots of expectations about who the Messiah was going to be. Some of them were on point, but many of them were wrong expectations about who the Messiah was supposed to be. And so we're going to spend the next three or four weeks talking about what are our assumptions, what are our expectations about the person of Jesus. And today we're going to look at Hebrews 2, which talks a lot about the incarnation. And so before we do that, um, I... I realize that this passage is a little bit long, and it's pretty deep. There's a lot to talk about, and so I don't want you to miss it. So I'll give you the context beforehand so that when you're listening to it, you can kind of, you have a map for it, okay? So the letter of Hebrews was written to Hebrews. It was written to Jews in the Roman Empire who had just recently converted to Christianity. So they had been raised in uh, the synagogue, but, you know, kind of like being raised in the church, they'd be raised in the synagogue with really strong values about what to do and what to not do. They were upstanding members of society. They were very moral, respected people. And they had a really great community of friends and family around them who were praying for them, who they would see on a consistent basis, who they were all practicing a moral life together. And they're actually highly respected by the Roman authorities. So they had good standing in society. They were well-respected in the marketplace, and so they had the kind of this, uh, this identity as Jews in the Roman Empire. And when people came into their town and said, hey, there's this new rabbi back in the Galilee area near Jerusalem, and he has claims to be Messiah, and actually he was crucified, and people say he was resurrected, and we want you to follow him and be baptized in his name. Some people from that synagogue would have separated off and said, we will be baptized in Jesus' name. And they would have gone into it. And some of them you know, would have been doing it because, well, this is the new thing. This is a cool new thing to do. But all of them would have not really realized the road ahead for them, that soon there would be suffering and persecution because they associated with the name of Jesus, that there wasn't the same social standing for Christians as there was for Jews, and that they were actually being persecuted. So that the synagogue members, the family and friends who used to pray for them, who they used to see every week, who they loved, now ostracized them. And they couldn't belong with the synagogue anymore, and they felt outcast. And they were also in fear of, of death and suffering because of their faith. So they have these two things going on. You have the shame that they feel from being ostracized from their community and not feeling like they belong, not feeling loved. And you also have the fear, the fear of death, the fear of suffering that they're experiencing. And both of these things were colliding so that they started to have a different view of Jesus. Many of them wanted to go back to what it used to feel like to be just a moral person. And they began to see Jesus as just a good rabbi, a good teacher, maybe even a prophet, 
who was worthy of being followed as a moralistic teacher. If I could only just get back to living a moral life, a good life, if I could just go back to, you know, that place where the children's ministry was really great, or if I could just go back to where the worship band was really great, or if I could just go back to sleeping in on Sundays, you know, so they, they had all these wishes of, could I just restore my life back to the way it used to be? And all of a sudden, their faith is hard, and they don't know how to go, and they begin to see Jesus differently. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to say, don't lose faith in Jesus. Don't forget who Jesus really is. So that's the, uh, that's the context of our passage this morning. Here, I'm going to pick it up here. Hebrews 2. And right at the beginning, he starts talking about angels. Uh, the author starts talking about angels. And that's referring to the faith of the Jews in the Roman Empire, the faith in the Old Testament of the prophets and uh, the law and angels who spoke to people. And so um, that's the context of what we're talking about. Here we go. Hebrews 2. Before we read this, let me just pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. I pray that as we read it and as we meditate on it, that your word would cut into our hearts, that you'd speak your word to us. We want to fix our eyes on you, Jesus. We want to see you for who you are, not for who we wish you were, but who you truly are. And we want to follow you. May we have courage and faith as we enter into this passage. Amen. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come. That's God. It's not to angels that God has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family, So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. I've been meditating on this passage for a few weeks now, and it is just, 
it's a big passage to stand under. There's a lot in here. And I've been really wrestling with it. But the thing that sticks out to me here is this last phrase. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. What does it mean that Jesus is our apostle and high priest? And what difference does that make? I recently got back from California. My family lives out there. And we were planning on going to the central coast of California to visit my mom's extended family. Um, My mom has several brothers and sisters. We were going to go visit them. There's some people that we haven't seen in a long time, one of whom is my Uncle Dale, who is pictured right here. Um, I hadn't seen Dale in like 10 years or so. And the night before we were about to leave, it was on a Sunday night, I get a text from my grandfather saying that he had passed away suddenly and unexpectedly. And so people have been asking me, how was your Thanksgiving trip? And it's kind of complicated when the night before you're about to leave, a family member who you're about to go visit um, passes away. I learned later that he was on a walk nearby his house. He's a pastor, um, just for a little background. He's a pastor of a church out there, um, and he has three adult sons and a wife, and they live in the central coast of California. And um, he was on a walk. He had just announced his retirement that morning. Um, and uh, he was on a walk. They had, just, they had actually just bought a cottage up in, the, um, up in the mountains that he and his wife were excited to go enjoy retirement at. And that night he was on a walk, and I imagine he was thinking about um, his retirement, dreams about the future, and a drunk driver came in, uh, hit him with a truck. And he was dead on the spot, and my, uh, my aunt found out only 45 minutes later or so, and so I get a text that that's, that happened. And on the plane flight out there, I'm just thinking about, you know, what's this going to be like being with my family? And uh, I think that phrase at the beginning of the passage, uh, what is mankind that you, uh, you care for them? You know, son of man that you care for them. You know, as I'm flying up in the airplane and looking down on Grand Rapids and West Michigan as we fly out, everything looks so small. You know, and, and our lives are so, so small. And life is really a vapor, right? That what happened to my uncle could have as easily happened to me. And it could happen to any of us. And so it really brings perspective on your life, right? It says, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. And it's almost as if the writer of Hebrews knew that that wasn't the reality that we were always experiencing. Everything under their feet. It says, In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. That death is not subject to us. That, that we are subject to death in the current world that we live in. That, that, that we see death all around us. And I'm flying to visit my family. And I'm thinking about thinking about that, thinking about him and his family, and also thinking about me and my own mortality, my own limitedness, that 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 could happen to me at a moment's notice. Not even a moment's notice. That could happen to me without me knowing it. And uh, I realized that uh, the writer of Hebrews is writing to people in this situation as well who who are fearing death, who are surrounded by death all day long and experiencing suffering. And that fear of death is kind of, uh, it grips you right? When you realize how short your life is, when you realize that it could pass away at any moment, 
There's people who've done all kinds of um, horrible things because they knew their life you know, was short, where they go, I'm going to get as much as I can. I'm going to uh, climb over other people. I'm going to um, get as much money as possible. I'm going to uh, you know, just serve me and myself. And um, so I'm flying, I'm flying out to California, and um, I'm thinking about my family. But I'm thankful. It was interesting timing that he was killed the, the day he, was, he announced his retirement. But also interesting that he, was, uh, that he died the week before Thanksgiving. And his whole family was already going to be out there. And so the Saturday after Thanksgiving, uh, we were able to be at his memorial service. And at any memorial service, I'm always confronted with, okay, life ends. Here we go. Like, what, is, what happened to my Uncle Dale? As much as my whole life I've professed, I believe in Jesus and I believe in the resurrection, when I get to a memorial service and someone has died, it brings a whole new reality to that, a whole new seriousness. I go, okay, where, what do I believe about Uncle Dale and where is he right now? And there are people in here right now um, who are mourning the loss of loved ones, even recently. Or maybe holiday memories bring up for you the fact that there's somebody who's not at the table. And at a memorial service, you're, you're really struck with that. Where is this person? And so we're, uh, we're singing uh, in the middle of the, the memorial service, we're singing the song, In Christ Alone, which is one of my favorites. Um, In Christ Alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ we live. And the next verse goes, um, There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost his grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. And I sing those words as I'm mourning my Uncle Dale. I'm thinking, the only reason I know that my uncle is with Jesus is because Jesus became a man. And he did every single thing that we did. That's what the scriptures say, right? He too shared in their humanity. So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The only reason I know that my Uncle Dale is with the Lord is because Jesus was a human too. And that gives me hope. That gives me hope that no matter what, we are rescued. We are rescued. Jesus is our pioneer. That's what it means that Jesus is our pioneer, that he did what we could never do for ourselves, that humanity was stuck in a curse, in sin, that we were constantly trying to turn back to God, but unable to because of our fear of death. We were unable to turn back to God and fulfill the covenant that God, God said, I want, to fulfill it. I want to have a covenant with you. I want to rescue you and bring you back to myself. And uh, the Psalms say, you know, who can ascend? Who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who can actually get there? Those with clean hands and a pure heart. And when we look around, the Psalms also say, no one is good, not one, right? No one is righteousness. We could not get to God on our own, but Jesus became a man, fully human, so that he could free us from the power of death. He pioneered his way forward through the cross to say, death is not the final answer. Death is not the end for us. 
a human pioneered that for us, but God did it for us in only the way God could. So he frees us from the fear of death. That's what the Hebrews writer is saying, is there is hope because Jesus is our apostle, our apostle. He has gone ahead of us as a human. God has gone ahead of us as a human and become our apostle. But he's also gone ahead of us and become our high priest. That's also what the scripture says. So what does it mean that he is our high priest? Um, this is where I believe that God frees us from our shame. The high priest frees us from our shame. It says um, in the scripture, let's see if I have it. Here we go. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus is not ashamed. Why did the writer write he's not ashamed? Because we have shame. We have shame about ourselves. The people who are following Jesus in the first century, uh, Jews who have been recent converts to Christianity, following Jesus, have shame because they are no longer belonging to the family they used to know. That shame is a powerful force that can even cause them to change their theology, change their beliefs. That they're, they're tempted to change what they think about God because of who they associate with. Isn't that true of us? My... Uh, I've told several stories about my daughter. I will tell another one because it's a good one. But uh, about two months ago now, um, my, so we do quiet time with my daughter. She doesn't uh, take naps anymore. That's just the way it is. Um, so she doesn't take naps anymore. So we go, okay, you have quiet time. It's based on an hour. We set a timer, and you go in your room and play by yourself. And she said, Dad, I just got this new pair of scissors. Can I please? Um, okay, some of you know what's going to happen. <laughs> Uh, can I please take my scissors up? I want to cut some paper and make like little signs for a shop. I'm like, okay. Um, but you promise not to cut your hair. And she said, yes, I promise. I would never, never, never do that. I'm like, okay. So um, she goes up to her room, and you know what happened next. We go upstairs, and she's got a towel over her head. And uh, I, so I go up there. <laughs> Rachel's like freaking out, and, um, and she has to leave the house. And I... <laughs> um, and I'm just, I'm there with Jane, and I'm thinking, okay, this is a moment, you know? Um, so I bring her to the bathroom, and I, I show her in the mirror, and I say, is this how you wanted it to look? She's like, yeah, that's how I wanted it to look. Okay, and I realize this is one of those moments, you know, where um, I wonder, when she, will she look back on this, and is this going to be a moment of shame for her, or a moment of responsibility for her? Is she going to, as, a, as an adult, what's she going to experience? Is she going to have shame around who she is, what she, what she looks like? Or is she going to have responsibility for herself? Is she going to have some love for herself? How do I show her love in the midst of disappointment? And parents out here probably know what I'm talking about. How do you show love even when you're disappointed? Uh, shame is a powerful force. And uh, Brene Brown says that, shame gone. So even that, that little thing of her cutting her hair, now she's starting to say, we'll hear her say things like, um, wondering if she's beautiful, you know, or wondering if she looks like a boy or whatever. And we realize that shame gone unnoticed, uh, just that's what Brene Brown says is, um, if shame is kept silent, uh, it will work its way into every corner and crevice of your life. That what we do is something happens and we don't believe that we're loved. And so we go into hiding because we don't belong. And now that we're in hiding, we've shut off even more of ourselves. And we go in deeper and deeper into hiding because we're not loved. 
And now nobody knows this part of me, and now I'm even more not loved. And this can cascade into every crack and corner of life so that when we look in the mirror, even as adults, what do we see? When we look at the mirror, um, we notice we're too old, or we're too young, or we're too fat, or we're too skinny, or we're too, uh, too geeky, or we're too dumb. Whatever it is, we look at ourselves and we realize that there's parts of ourselves that we don't believe are truly lovable. That somewhere along the line, whether it's someone, something someone said or something we heard, something we just began to believe about ourselves, that we are not completely and fully lovable. And shame sets in and has its grip on our lives. And this is actually, uh, you would hope that this would be better in the church, but some of us, many of us, were raised in Christian households where um, it was very moralistic, that this is how you live, and if you step outside of these boundaries, you do not belong. And so those parts of us that have gone outside the boundaries at some times, or who have experienced something different than what our parents experienced, now experience shame in that area, that church can actually be a huge place for shame for many, many people who have chosen to leave the church to follow Jesus, which is a really sad thing, right? Because we are the body of Christ. And shame really has no place in this place. Shame really should be no part of our families. Shame should not be any part of our faith. And this is what the, uh, the early Jewish Christian converts have experienced. They've experienced shame from their community, that they began to follow Jesus. They began to love the outcasts. They began to adopt the orphans. They began to take care of the widows. They began to sacrifice their lives on behalf of others. They began to proclaim Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And that did not fit in with the expectations of their church community, and they were ostracized and shamed. So now they're experiencing deep, deep shame that makes them want to go back and abandon their faith. And so you see um, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, it says this. Um, let's see. What did I say? Um, chapter 11 through 12, it says, uh, sorry, chapter 2, verse 11 through 12, it says, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. So even as ashamed as we are of ourselves, Jesus says to us, in the incarnation, I am going to take up humanity. I'm going to take on your skin and bones. The, the, the body that you think is too old or too fat or too dumb or whatever, um, I'm going to take that on. And I'm going to assure you that if it's good enough for God to inhabit, it sure is good enough for you to inhabit. That there is no shame in who you are that I've taken up residence in humanity and now all shame is gone and wiped away. That's what the incarnation means. And so he says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. That actually comes from uh, Psalm uh, 22, if I could pull it up. I don't have it on the slide, so I'll have to thumb through it for a second. It says this, um, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering or the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. God does not hide his face from us. God does not disgrace us. 
God sees us and he loves us. He listens to us. God is with us. God is Emmanuel. And that's hard to believe. Even since the very beginning of time, God created the heavens and earth. That's what the writer is talking about, the beginning of Hebrews, when he says, um, um, he has, what is mankind that you're mindful of him? He's referring to creation. Um, that comes from uh, Psalm 14. He, it's a psalm of praise for the glory of creation. You know, when I see the moon and the stars that you've set in place, I think, what is mankind that you've made him? You know? and, and what he's saying is, 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 look back at creation. God created mankind to be good. He created us in the image of God. That's how we were created. And it was us who, who turned away from God and hid in shame. Right? We took the bite of the apple and said, I'm, I'm, I can't accept that gift. And so we ran away in the opposite direction. And that shame cascaded not only in our own lives, but in the way we see others, the way we ostracize others, that we project our shame onto all the people around us. And we don't want to associate with people who remind us of how broken we are in the inside. And so the people were held in that shame like, like prisoners. And it was in, in the incarnation that God said, no, I'm going to make an atonement, that I'm going to make at-one-ment, atonement, A-T-O-N-E-M-E-N-T, at-one-ment. I'm going to make at-one-ment. I'm going to make God and human are now compatible again. There is no shame. We are now joined. The, the union that, that I wanted for us at the beginning of creation between God and humanity is now fully expressed in the person, in the humanity of Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully human combined into one. That there's no shame in being human. That there's no shame in our mortality. That, that God is actually physically present with us. And so that's what the angels actually announce the night Jesus is born in Luke 2. They sing the song to the shepherds. They sing glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Um, instead of those, it actually should, it's anthropos, which is uh, men, people. So on earth peace to people, to humanity on whom his favor rests. The announcement to the world is that God's favor is now fully present in this child. God's favor is fully present in this baby, that God and humans are one. And so the, all of humanity is now one with God in Jesus. That's what he did. And so that's the good news that we celebrate. We celebrate that God's favor rests on us and, and peace is with us because of that, that we have peace instead of shame. So it's the week of Thanksgiving and I'm, I'm, we're getting ready for from the memorial service, my uncle. And we drive to the church, and there's a whole bunch of people who are there. The church is uh, filled with people. They have to, it's a really small, tiny church, and, and they have to set up chairs in the narthex. Um, and there's, there's like news people out on the streets. And, um, and we're singing in Christ alone, and it's time to dismiss the family. And my, I see my aunt walk by, and I just think of her I think of, you know, does she, if shame is not believing that we're fully lovable, um, how is she experiencing God's love? How is she not experiencing God's love in this time? Is she feeling loved or is she feeling shame as she walks out? And as she walks out, I'm also noticing she's surrounded by a whole bunch of people. This is the body of Christ that has come to be with her in her mourning, that she's being assured 
um, that she's not alone. And so in this place, in this, in, this, uh, in this memorial service, I'm seeing just a wonderful picture of the incarnation, that here we are celebrating the resurrection, that there is hope, that even though our uncle has died, even though our pastor has died, even though our friend has died, we have hope that Jesus is our apostle and has gone ahead of us and has, has taken up humanity into heaven so that we can follow right behind him. And so that's the hope we have. We're looking to Jesus as our apostle, but we're also looking around and going, we're not alone. God is with us right now, right here. He's become our high priest and has removed the shame and become God with us, Emmanuel, so we can be with each other. And so I just want to conclude by saying the same thing that the author of Hebrews says. Holy brothers and sisters who share in our heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Why? Because when we are free from the fear of guilt, or fear of shame, and we're free of the fear of death, we're able to be free to be incarnational people in the lives of others. That the church showed up to be around my aunt, and they were being incarnational in her life to be able to say, we are testifying with you that there is hope beyond death. And we're also testifying with you that we are going to walk with you through this, and you're not alone, that you don't have to feel shame, that you can be free from it. Um, I'm going to invite the band up because we're going to take some moments to reflect. Where do you need Emmanuel with you in your life right now? I'm especially thinking of that shame piece. Um, What parts of yourself do you feel are unlovable or that maybe you're ashamed of, that you would kind of like to turn away from God? What are you ashamed of? Um, and can we look in the mirror and see ourselves, even our broken bodies, our, um, the parts of ourselves that we normally feel shame of, can we look in the mirror and see ourselves as highly favored in God's eyes, through and through, 100%? And who do we need to surround ourselves with, or whose lives do we need to enter into to testify to the fact that we are not alone, that God is with us, and that there's no shame or fear of death? I think of Belay Youth Ministry. I love that Tara shared that um, the ministry and the stories there. I think of the way that her and the missional community are entering in and being incarnational. That these kids might have felt shame about who they are. That these kids might have feared what could happen to them if certain things didn't happen in their lives. But here is this missional community being incarnational in the way that Jesus was an incarnation to say, you are not alone and there is hope for your life. I think of the refuge initiative that we just talked about. You saw the video of uh, Billy Ray and his team have gone into a valley in Iraq that, um, where all these refugees have fled, and they are crippled with shame and fear. Shame about who they are, about whether someone loves them, whether they belong, and fear about what might happen in their lives. But this team is in place, and it's not just Billy Ray. It's all these other people whose lives have been redeemed, um, people who are native to that valley, whose lives have been redeemed by the message of Christ, who are witnessing that there is no shame and there is no fear of death. So that's what I want to charge us to be together as we enter this Advent season, to be courageous, to follow Jesus, fix our eyes on Jesus, who is our apostle and high priest, so that we can be an incarnational people. Okay? Let's stand up and worship.